0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 353, Should Christians Accept the Trinity? I get asked to do a lot of interviews, and usually I don't make them into podcasts. Usually, but not always, I'll post them on my blog at trinities.org. But in this instance, I thought that the host's questions were so thoughtful and penetrating and challenging that the Trinity's podcast audience would really want to hear this discussion. The one who asked me for this interview is Dr. Randall Rouser, who is well-known as a progressive evangelical Trinitarian analytic theologian at a seminary in Canada. I've interviewed him on the podcast before. I've got links to those episodes on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Also, you can see the original video there for this interview, from which I took and edited the audio. Dr. Rouser has some unusual intellectual virtues He asks the hard questions, he thinks independently, and he's always trying to find that balance in his life as a thinking Christian between tradition and whatever it is that we know now. I was grateful for this interview, and I think you'll enjoy it.
1: I'm delighted to have Dr. Dale Tuggy joining us today. Dale has a PhD from Brown University. He was professor of philosophy for 18 years at State University of New York. He left in 2018, but he has continued on with his academic work, and we're all thankful for that. I'm going to talk about that work in just a minute, but I also want to note that I have a last option named Sonny. He has a Yorkie-poo. Yorkie-poo, yeah. <laughs> he is uh, four, approximately 14 years old, I checked. Is that sound yeah. right?
0: Yeah, he's sleeping over here somewhere. He's awesome. out of sight right now. but yeah, so He's we my both little have, shadow. He hangs out with me. We both have dogs me. named Sonny. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. And Dale's main work has been in the Doctrine of the Trinity. There's a book published years ago by Eugene Peterson, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And it's kind of like that. I think sometimes academics are characterized by a long attention to the same topic. And certainly I think that would characterize Dale's work. He's been thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity quite intently for more than 20 years, maybe 25 years. Has written a couple books on it. One is What is the Trinity? Thinking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Also co-authored with Chris Date. The book is Jesus Human and Not Divine. And links will be included below for those books. Also written a lot of articles, including the Stanford Encyclopedia article. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also host of Trinity's podcast, which is one of the, I think, top I know, three maybe philosophy of religion podcasts, in my opinion, online. Over 350 episodes now. Incredible. And they're not all on the Doctrine of the Trinity, but probably most of them are. So uh, if, if there's someone you wanted to think about the Trinity with, I think Dale Tuggy is an excellent guest. Dale is not, however, a Trinitarian. And so things are about to get very interesting so, Dale, I'm going to just open it up with an invitation for you to say, what is your view of the doctrine of God, and how did you arrive at that view? Huge topic, I know, but uh, just give us the capsule overview.
0: I'll start with the how I arrived at it part, and then I'll tell you what my view is. I mean, so I basically grew up evangelical, a couple different kinds of evangelical churches, and honestly, didn't really think about the Trinity it wasn't really a topic of concern. It was never preached on. The deity of Christ came up once in a while. I didn't really have coherent views on the Trinity. I started thinking about it, I think, in about 1997. A friend and I both read uh, Richard Swinburne's book on the Trinity. And, uh, wait, is this right? Is this tritheism? What are we supposed to make of this? And um, my train in philosophy had been a lot of history of philosophy, ancient, medieval, modern, particularly modern. And I had kind of learned how to go back and understand things in their context. And you don't trust the later guys to tell you what the earlier guys thought, right? So if you want to know what Aristotle thinks, you go read Aristotle. You don't listen to Thomas Aquinas and think you're just getting Aristotle somehow from that, even though he might have thought that he was just an Aristotelian. So anyway, I guess I would say it was apologetics that got me interested in the Trinity. I thought, well, look, there's it can't be that this is a contradiction. It's true, right? All Christians hold this. It's only weirdo fringe figures and cultists who don't believe in the Trinity. And so I started to read about different ways to try to understand the standard phraseology to make it come out coherent by people like Brian Leftow, Richard Swinburne, Peter Van Inwagen, William Lane Craig, etc. I ran into problems every which way I went. And so I wasn't sure, you know, should I just say it's a mystery? That kind of seemed like a cop out to me. It has some other downsides to it. Basically, I was shocked to learn that there were these Protestants that weren't Trinitarians going back to pretty early Reformation times. And because I was so familiar with early modern stuff, I could easily go and read these guys in English. Well, that's interesting. These are people who are conservative and believe in the Bible, but they don't believe in the Trinity. Why is that? And I was shocked to discover that you can't get a Trinity doctrine out of the Bible. So there's just not enough there. It's like poorly motivated. And so my view is that the one true God is the Father. The one true God of the Bible is a personal being, it's a self. So in the Old Testament, he's known by the personal name Yahweh. That personal name had fallen out of usage by New Testament times among Jews, so then he's referred to as just God or the Father or God the Father. So, I mean, I think the New Testament doctrine is the one true God is the Father and no one else. Jesus is a human being, unique son of God, miraculously conceived, who is God's Messiah. And it turns out that it's a super big deal to be Messiah. You get to be raised to God's right hand and made the mediator between God and men. So, basically, I'm just more Reformed than most Protestants. In my experience, the bulk of Protestants stopped where the main reformers, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli stopped. They kind of wanted to roll things back to about the time of Augustine, but they were so Augustinian, most of them, it was just kind of unthinkable to like go back and question like the Nicene Creed. But I've looked into it and I think it's problematic. I don't know which kind of church you go to now, Randall, but I know that you're from a kind of a, quote, low church background. Myself, I've lived my whole Christian life, and I've never been under the authority of Catholic bishops. So why would I think that a meeting convened by a Roman emperor in 381 or 325 would be authoritative to just settle central theological questions? There were reformers that just, no, let's go right back to the Bible, even about the doctrine of God and Christ those guys are today referred to as the Radical Reformation. This is the standard heavy tome on it by this Harvard scholar. And uh, some of them basically kind of just ignored the Trinity and sidelined it. They're like, that's not scriptural language. That's a pretty common solution. In fact, you really see that very widespread today in the Protestant world outside of the Calvinists and Anglicans. But then others, you know, became, quote, anti-Trinitarians. They said, wait a second, the one true God's the Father. just like it says in John 17:1 through 3, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through and really presupposed in the whole rest of it. So, you know, you had various kinds of Unitarian Christians in America, England, Transylvania, other parts of Europe in the 16, 17, 1800s And then of their own free will, American Unitarians face-planted and just died as a Christian movement for very interesting reasons. In brief, they were super individualistic, and uh, they didn't believe in creeds of any kind. And so when their minister stopped being a theist, they didn't know what to do. And they also kind of bought into the Enlightenment idea that the whole point of religion is just ethics, just love your neighbor, and isn't all the rest just details that people shouldn't quibble about? And they kind of veered off, and they just stopped simply preaching the gospel and planting churches. And so Unitarian Universalism is a new religion that grew out of the dead corpse of American Unitarianism. But, you know, you see it in in American history from about, depends what you count as Unitarian, but roughly 1770s to late 1800s, you still have, you know, people that are just Christians, but they don't believe in Trinity and Incarnation. They believe in miracles, inspiration of the Bible, resurrection, so on. So sorry if that was long-winded. I apologize. I used to be a professor, so short answers are hard for me.
1: No, no, that's helpful. Um, So Jesus, Holy Spirit, what's your description then of Jesus and the Holy Spirit on on this Um, Unitarian view?
0: Unitarian Christians like me really have two overriding main concerns. And one is that we should have a biblical monotheism, the right kind of monotheism. And the other one is that Jesus should be a man, right? The New Testament is clear in its portrayal that Jesus is a real man. He's always portrayed that way. He has a human mother. John 8, 40, why are you trying to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God? And in truth, I think most Christians, they do think he's a man, but somehow he also has a divine nature. They're not too sure how those things go together. But even though that's what most Christians think, and I'm glad about that, the man part, the mainstream tradition, in my opinion, is docetic. That doesn't have a real man it says that the eternal divine logos this eternal divine person entered into an indescribable union with an anhypostatic complete human nature and to say it's anhypostatic means that it's not itself a person it becomes personal by virtue of being unified with what is a person the logos so the one self in jesus on mainstream tradition is this eternal divine person But there's a body and soul there but they don't constitute a person somehow he's operating through them but um that doesn't seem like a man to me that seems like something that could be mistaken for a man and i think that's kind of a central new testament teaching and even in the days of the new testament they were starting to combat various kind of Docetic trends with probably pre-gnostic types of uh speculators
1: I don't want to get on a tangent about the incarnation but uh, mm-hmm. I take it you also don't find like for example a kenotic view to be a satisfactory one.
0: Uh no. I mean if kenosis is your way of trying to remain orthodox it doesn't work because it's against the mainstream tradition as I think Timothy Paul shows in his first incarnation book. All right? So they say things like, you know, the properties of the natures are not changed and so it really does have to still be omniscient and omnipotent. But, you know, that's not the Jesus of the New Testament, in my view. So, uh, yeah, the Holy Spirit, there are different views. There are some Unitarians that think the Holy Spirit is kind of a lesser unseen being, you know, and that's what ancients thought like Origen and Tertullian. But most Unitarian Christians nowadays think that spirit talk in the New Testament really should be understood on the model of the Old Testament. And so God's spirit is just a way of talking about his unseen power or an exercise of his power. It's personified a couple of times, particularly in the fourth gospel, very vividly talked about as if it were a person. But what's kind of decisive to me is it doesn't seem to be a a distinctive character in the narrative. It can be a way of talking about God, the father, to talk about the spirit. You can even maybe in a few passages be understood as a way of talking about the resurrected and exalted, but still active Jesus. But um, it doesn't really appear as a third character in the narrative to what do, us. What do you think, so. for
1: example, about um, the way that Jesus talks about the coming of the paraclete in John 14 to 17, using personal pronoun and so on, saying there's another like me who's coming?
0: It's, it's just a, just a, yeah, it's a personification. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. okay. But how about we use this just for a quick segue for a very familiar passage. Most Trinitarians are going to think about this one, uh, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the baptismal formula baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There you have the one singular name. You have three distinct persons, three distinct references for that one name, and one of them is spirit it seems to imply there's a yeah. distinct person there and so on. What do you think?
0: Well, it's this is a part of a wider phenomenon, which you could call triadic passages in the New Testament. And depending on how you count them, there could be a dozen of them or, or there could be a lot more. Dr. Robert M. Bowman, Jr. has a list of, I think it's 70 or 80 or something. It depends how big you're willing to let the passage be. Right. Um, to me, it doesn't reflect any assumption of a triune God. No such thing is mentioned in the New Testament. Rather, they're an example of what I call Christian unity statements. So they're mentioning the things that unite all Christians, namely the one God, the one human Lord Jesus, and the one spirit that's given to all believers. So you're being baptized into those three things. I would compare it to the list of unique things that we have in common in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, where there's a list of, I think, seven things, one faith, one hope, etc. And then the three of these are thrown in there and not in the right order. And the reason they needed to do that was because there was no institutional structure you just had these churches that had derived from different apostles, so there was always, there was always a little bit of pride. You know, my apostle is bigger than yours, and they tended to kind of factionalize. And so, to mention those things is a way of mentioning the things that you, all Christians have in common, basically. And the name—I'm not sure about this point, but I've been told by people who know more Greek grammar that they understand the name distributively. So, you're being baptized into the Father, into the name of the Father, into the name of the Son, into the name of the Holy Spirit. It's really a kind of idiom of what you're being initiated into, right? So it's God, the unique Lord, and the unique spirit of God.
1: Is there an analogy here, for example, when the trichotomist says that when we have references to body, soul, and spirit, and that warrants us thinking there are three distinct elements of a person that constitute a human being, you would say, no, it's just more of a catch-all phrase. We, We shouldn't read into it three distinct metaphysical parts, something like that.
0: It's true in general that the New Testament doesn't really go in for metaphysics, and so therefore it doesn't really go in for the you know telling you the exact metaphysical composition of God or Jesus. But it's all background assumptions. I think I'm not sure what I think about those supposed triadic passages. Honestly, it's been a while since I looked at them. Hmm. But what's interesting is what is and isn't you know a controversy in those times. So the big controversy in the New Testament is: is Jesus really God's Messiah? And then after that, can you really have Jesus followers that don't keep the whole law of Moses? Like that's where all the energy is spent. There isn't any controversy around how can you say this man is God? You'd think there would be like at Jesus' trials, but there actually isn't in my view. If you look carefully, some will dispute that in the case of Mark, but we can talk about that if you want. And there is no dispute about, you know, whether God is one or three, whether this is monotheism, whether it's faithful to Jewish theology. Like, to me, the theology of the New Testament, it just is Second Temple Jewish theology. In fact, this is our best information about the Jewish theology of the early and mid-first century is what's in the New Testament. They think the God is the Father Almighty, the King of the universe. It's a person. When the Trinity's podcast returns... Dr. Rouser asks me about whether there is a triune God doctrine which is implicit in the Bible.
1: terms of finding the doctrine of the trinity in the new testament as you said it's not there it is true there's no verse like a, the johannine comma of first john five seven and eight where you actually had a capsule summary that appeared to be like a trinitarian statement but of course many people would say well the trinity perhaps the doctrine is there in latent form you have references to the father as divine to the son as divine to the spirit as divine you have yeah. evidence that they're all distinct, and you have monotheism. So you put those pieces together, that just is the doctrine of the Trinity in seminal form. So What would you say?
0: Well, I have a big podcast lecture about this. It's called something like How to Prove the Bible is Trinitarian. If I can summarize it, this is a very modern tradition that derives from B.B. Warfield and this encyclopedia he wrote around the turn of the century for a religious or theological encyclopedia. And he just said, Hey, there's these three claims. And if I can just get these three claims, that's all the doctrine of the Trinity amounts to, but well, when you count them, it's actually seven claims. Like when you individuate claims, the way right. you do in logic class, yeah. it's not really three, but even though seven, each one's divine, each one's distinct from each other. And there's only one God. Those are not sufficient for a Trinity theory, because you could agree with all those seven things I just said, and you could think that the Son and Spirit are divine in a lesser sense, and the Father just is the one true God. So you really have to say more, right? And why did we throw all of the Nicene Creed language out the window? Why are we not talking about generation, inspiration, the eternal processions, patristic doctrines? In that lecture, I look at a uh, an early modern Reformed creed, and I count, I think it's 11 claims or something like that. So I think it's dumbed down. The arguments are problematic. One way they're problematic is you can just see that they've demoted the Father from being the unique one true God to being something else. The New Testament doesn't just tell you that the Father is divine. It tells you that the Father just is the one true God. That's why it uses the phrase the Father interchangeably with the phrase theos. And there's a bunch of other ways you can sort of see this as well. The fact also that it has the phrase, God the Father, but never God the Son or God the Spirit. You know, if you look in books like this one, for instance, kind of a standard monograph on what theos means in the New Testament by an evangelical scholar named Murray Harris. What he'll tell you is that when you see Theos in the New Testament, whether or not it has the the, the ha, uh, definite article at the front of it, it's always the father, unless there's some very passage-specific reason why it can't be the father, it has to be somebody else. So, Satan's called the god of this world, well, that's not the father. If it maybe has to do with Jesus, you know, like in uh, Hebrews 1, eight and 9, quoting a psalm, your throne of God is forever, therefore God, your God, has anointed you your throne, O God, everybody thinks that refers to Jesus. But there's a translation problem. It could mean God is your throne forever, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek versions. So, But anyway, I think that's right. I think he's addressing Christ as God there, but it's the kind of God who has a God over him. So the second quote God mentioned would be the Father.
1: There's a common assumption among Christians that use of the word God is just sort of an absolute. You either are God or not setting aside God of this world, which you just referenced with, with respect to Satan, but mm-hmm. but but that if Jesus, for example, or the Logos, assuming the Logos is Jesus, I know it's a point that you would take issue with in, in John 1, 1 to 1, 3, John 1, 18, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So there's an assumption that, well, that places him in the same ontological category as the father, if he's referred to as yeah. a God. And also worship is only something you would direct to a being that is fully God. So if Jesus received mm-hmm. worship, then he must be ontologically equivalent to the father. So how would you respond to those two points?
0: Those are probably the two biggest arguments that lead either to confusing Jesus and God together for one and the same, or for trying to support just that they have a divine nature. So the first assumption is that why would they call anything God unless it was had a divine nature or was fully divine? I think the answer to that is given by Jesus in John 10. He's arguing with the Pharisees, and he notes that those to whom the word of God came are called theoi, they're called gods. But then he corrects them about what he was claiming. I think he's assuming, for the sake of argument, the Pharisees' interpretation of that passage. I think originally it was talking about unseen beings. But in Jesus' time, I think they took it for people, like religious leaders. So his argument is, if it's not blasphemous for those guys who aren't as great as the Messiah to be called gods, it just can't be blasphemy for the Messiah who's greater to be called by the title Son of God. It's an all the more so argument. It's a brilliant, cutting argument, and it goes from their own assumptions. But the word God is just more flexible in the Old Testament and to a lesser extent in the New Testament. As time goes on, they tend to reserve the word God more and more for the one true God, and it's less flexible. In the older texts, it's more of a common noun. right? So as time goes on, it sort of morphs into almost like a proper name, which is how we tend to use it now. Now about worship, yeah, I have a big podcast about this, a paper called Who Should Christians Worship? It's an interesting question why the New Testament authors don't address this more directly Because on the face of it, it looks like it conflicts with one of the Ten Commandments, where Yahweh says, only worship me. But the two clear texts about it are Philippians 2, when Paul talks about Jesus' exaltation after his humiliation. And he says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, apparently they think that the worship of Jesus, if you want to quibble about words, you know, maybe it's honor, not worship. If worship just by definition is for the one true God, then What do you want to call this over here? I would call it worship. I'll use the word flexibly like that. It looks like his view is the worship of Jesus is to the glory of the God who sent him, empowered him, vindicated him, raised him, exalted him. The other even clearer text, I think, is Revelation 4 and 5. It's this fever dream vision kind of a thing. And he sees God's throne in chapter 4. And there's these kind of heavenly court that worships him because he's the one true God and the creator. But there's this figure on the throne, that's Yahweh, just like in Isaiah and other places in the Old Testament. And then in chapter 5, the vision shifts, and now they bring in the one who looks like a lamb who's been slain, and he's found worthy to be exalted, basically. And then they all kind of worship God and Jesus together like by singing the same song. So most Unitarians would say, yes, we do worship Jesus, but we don't worship him as God we worship him as the son of God, like in that heavenly song in Revelation 5, on the basis of what he's done to bring you know peoples of all nations to God, carrying out his mission perfectly as God ordained. So also, that's, that's the majority view. There are some Unitarians, and this goes back to an argument between Sosinus and Frank David in the 1500s, who say, no, worship is only for God. But, you know, Christ can be invoked or honored or something. I think it's largely a verbal dispute. And again, for us, I think, I'm not sure why this is. I suspect that there's an influence of Islam there somewhere along the story. But in modern times, when we say worship, very often we mean something that's religious, public, and is due to God alone. So just worship by definition can only be given to God. It didn't always used to be that way, right? The Anglican marriage ceremony has the husband and wife say, with my body, I thee worship. They're not committing idolatry or thinking their spouse is God or something, right? It just means honor. So the Bible terms, most of them, like proscuneo, are more flexible. It's the honor you give to a king, but it's also the honor you give to God. The word latruo means service, like paradigmatically like temple service. You can argue that that has only to do with God, but I would just say to people like that, that want to quibble about the word worship, like, well, what do you call what's happening in Revelation 5? Like, that's what I would call worship. If if you want to say, well, there's actually two things going on. There's worship that's for God, and then there's some lesser kind of honor. Okay. I don't want to quibble about words.
1: It does say cr- I think that yeah.
0: Christians from the beginning have worshiped Christ Yeah, because of who he is
1: you know the plenty of the younger famously write the the letter they rise early and sing hymns to christ as to a god
0: yeah um probably it, not it, enough theological nuance in that pagan uh yeah for
1: sure yeah
0: political functionary statement but yeah no it's a good uh, testimony isn't it
1: it leads me actually, and I wasn't thinking about this initially, but it leads me into a very practical question. How did becoming a Unitarian impact your own worship, or did it? Did it does Or does that underdetermine sort of the practices uh, spiritually that, that uh, you form your life with?
0: I found it very helpful in a couple of ways. One way is the New Testament just makes sense to me now I don't look at them as these theological primitives that really are just kind of struggling, flailing around, waiting for the Nicene Creed to make things clear for them. I feel like I get how they're thinking about Christ and God, and that's kind of encouraging. It's not brimming with paradoxes to me. There's a lot of easy passages that fit very easy with my views, and there's more difficult passages like Hebrews 1, John 1, Colossians 1, Philippians 2 that I think take more work because there's such a a Trinitarian kind of consensus among the commenters. But um, 22 or 23 years ago, I guess, when I was just kind of starting to think about this, I was strongly influenced by um, Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. And really, to me, it's a profoundly Unitarian book. Although he wasn't a Unitarian, but he's just so, has his head so thoroughly into the New Testament. It's about Jesus, his teaching, his view of the world, the way that he trusted in God and depended on God. And it really holds him up as a model of Christian faith and Christian life. I later wrote a paper that got published called um, Jesus as an Exemplar of Faith in the New Testament. It's interesting. They don't spend a lot of words on it, but he's most definitely portrayed in particularly in the synoptics, as one who really puts his trust in God in a heroic fashion and then God vindicates him. And so it makes the imitation of Christ seem like a reasonable thing to even try. Because if you say, Well, Dale, I want you to try to imitate an all-powerful, all-knowing being who doesn't need anything and who's always existed, like I wouldn't kind of know how to start, you know, being so puny and ridiculous. But with this man who is clearly fearful, who is figuring things out as he goes along and who needs to pray for guidance and things like that, it's just, yeah, okay, I can do that. You know, it puts Jesus back at the number one place in my list of Christian spiritual heroes. Mm -hmm. So it's been helpful. I don't think, you know, I was worshiping a false god or anything when I was a Trinitarian. I just think I was just confused, like... When I read the Bible, okay. I think God is this one guy and Jesus is somebody else. And then
1: let's approach wait. that confusion from a couple okay. different angles. So so one sure. of them, um, Jesus says in John 16, 13, when the spirit comes, he will lead you into all truth. And I don't want to mm-hmm. proof text that, but it is pretty common to sort of think that we could have a general deference to the wisdom of tradition as guided by the spirit and community. And if you're saying somewhere in the early centuries of the church, you know, the mainstream Orthodox Church went radically askew, and it was only when the Unitarians began to pop up post-Reformation that we began to get more on track, and still to this day, the vast majority of Christians are fundamentally confused in the way you've described about the basic doctrine of God. Does that not then impugn the actions of spirit, whether spirit is a person or simply God guiding the church? conversely, to take it in the other direction, couldn't you just say, this is a good argument to believe we should defer to tradition? It's not an infallible thing, but for the most part, the church is going to get something that fundamental correct.
0: Well, it just depends how Catholic you are, Randall. I mean, if you're Roman Catholic, then for you, the teaching authority of the Roman Catholic Church is what's primary, and you accept scripture because it's what they say is scripture, and you read it the way they say you should read it. You know, interestingly enough, scholars like that tend to agree with me about the New Testament. They don't need to try to shoehorn the Trinity or the Incarnation into the New Testament. They look at Acts 2, you know, here's a man who's approved to you by God by signs and wonders that God did through him. They're like, yeah, they thought Jesus was a man. But, you know, maybe they had some inklings that this wasn't complete or something. But anyway, you know, we go by the ecumenical creeds so for them the roman catholic church with all of its structure and hierarchy is the medium of divine revelation i'm a protestant i don't think that's right to just put your trust in divine providence and say it happened this way therefore this must be what god intended would just flat destroy protestantism completely you know in the year 1519 or whatever all the christians in the world had bishops and now protestants don't have bishops They practiced monasticism, they had monks and nuns, they had a sacramental view of divine grace, they sought the mediation of saints and stuff like that. And I really do think we're better off without all those things. And the medium of revelation to me was not the whole structure of the Catholic Church, it was Jesus and his apostles. I see a series of mistakes as church history goes on. So one of the biggest mistakes was in the 4th century, this class of privileged rulers, the bishops, they seized for themselves the power of discussing and determining disputed questions of theology. Before that, they were still in the hands of lay people and scholars. Um, they're like, no, we'll settle this for you. Don't worry your pretty head. And they took that power for themselves. It wasn't a power they had before. In my view, the one bishop system was a mistake. It was an expedient to deal with heresy. If we just have one guy control all the churches in the city, then we can, with one guy, smash all the false teachers. And I think the cure turned out to be really bad, too. I'm not going to say it was worse than the disease because the Gnostics were pretty rotten, but, you know, it was pretty bad. A hundred years on, you have these bishops amassing property, acting like governors, basically, all the corruption that so beset Catholicism for centuries is all there very early, not to mention the idolatry and confusing doctrines and so on. Like when you're baptized, that washes the sins, right? And there is no forgiveness after that. I'm sympathetic to Catholicism, despite all those things I just said, you know, I think there's a lot of good things in the tradition. and my starting point was, yeah, I think you have to start with where the majority is. And you have to ask yourself, is this just some kind of conspiracy theory that some jokers have come up with that there's all this stuff the man doesn't want you to know about? And it's all been hidden for all these centuries. But now, you know, critical thinkers like me have finally uncovered this. You have to ask that question. And honestly, I did. And I <laughs> invite. I invite people to look into it. There's a reason why, since the Reformation, there's been a steady drip of whistleblowers saying, hey guys, Bible doesn't teach the Trinity or the Incarnation. I mean, there's a guy that goes to my church who taught at the Master's University Israel Extension for years and knows modern and biblical Hebrew. And he just, through his own study, he's like, wait a second, the Messiah is supposed to be a man. Now he's a biblical Unitarian. There's a steady drumbeat of these people going back to the Reformation. Now. I might just think that this was Protestant hijinks, if that's all that was true. But you also have Unitarians in ancient times of two kinds. The kind that's more like me are what scholars have in modern times dubbed dynamic monarchians. So they think the logos of John 1 is a divine power, dunamis in Greek. And they think really there's one god, the father, that's the monarchia. So, like Jesus says in the fourth gospel, the Father is in me doing his works. Or like Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So, they think he does all these miracles and has divine teaching because God is working with him and through him. And God has empowered him, you know, like you see in Luke 4. So, there's those kinds of ancient Unitarian Christians, which are a very difficult subjects. They're from the late 100s. They even pop up as a bishop of a major city, and I think it's the 360s, Photonus of Sirmium. And then they kind of disappear from history gradually as orthodoxy kind of clamps down on rival views. And by the way, I'm involved in editing a scholarly monograph by a guy named Tom Gaston, who's a PhD in church history, which is about the dynamic monarchians and arguing that actually their kind of Christology was probably the earliest. So that's a really interesting book that should be out in the fall. The other kind of ancient um, Unitarians, which is more common in the tradition that's been preserved to us because later Orthodoxy felt that this was kind of heading more in their direction, would be people like Justin, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, Novation. And they agree with me that the one true God just is the Father. Whenever they're challenged on monotheism, they don't say there's one trinity they don't say there's one divine nature. They say, we are monotheists because the Father is the one true God. That's the God of the Jews. So that's what a Unitarian says. But they have this speculation that there's this divine logos, which God spoke out either in eternity or right before creation. It's you know the second greatest being, basically. And then somehow there's this third place greatest being, the Holy Spirit, that maybe comes from the logos or the two of them. It depends on the author. So they have monotheism, but then there's these two lesser divine beings who are closely associated with God. And starting with Justin, they speculate that any quote God or Lord who's seen in the Old Testament, it's really the Logos. God is too transcendent for that. Later tradition kind of forgets about this. But anyway, it's subordinationist Unitarianism. And it comes back in modern times. People like John Biddle and Samuel Clark in England have very similar views to this like, oh, yeah, the one true God's the Father, Jesus is human, but he preexisted as this lesser divine being. And uh, they think that... I want to
1: approach this from another direction. I will say, like, this is one of the points of my sympathies with, like, not trying to flame that the New Testament writers were Trinitarians, Mm -hmm. Uh, I do find that grossly implausible. I do think it's a doctrine that grew over the centuries and that what you're talking about is this intermediate period prior to Nicaea. I'm not Catholic, but I certainly have a general deference to the wisdom of tradition. So I'm a
0: little bit Catholic because you're a PhD in theology.
1: Yeah, I I would. Well, (laughs) a little bit
0: small C Catholic. Yeah, yeah,
1: I I certainly I I think you do need that. I think you need to have that developmental piece. But I want to push back. Let's say that someone is unchurched and they're considering Mm -hmm. Christianity. And then you present a compelling case for your view to their satisfaction. But then they come back and say, but if Christianity were true, one would expect God is not the author of confusion, that you would not have this degree of message not received in terms of the basics of the divine nature. You can can find Unitarians as a fledgling minority position throughout history, but it certainly Mm -hmm. hasn't been the mainstream. And that seems prima facie to count against the likelihood that Christianity is actually God's revelation. What would you say to that?
0: Two things, I think. One is that if you're a Christian, you already know this sort of thing happened with the Jews before. So the Jews in Jesus' time were a bit of a mess. They were split into several interesting factions that we know a fair deal about now, mostly through the New Testament. Jesus seems to be most sympathetic to the Pharisees, even though he's super harsh on them at the same time, and those are among his main opponents. And you could make the same argument, you know, why would you think God was involved in this whole Jewish tradition when he lets it get so fragmented and weird? According to Jesus, like none of them was completely right. None of those factions. So, you know, God lets us mess things up is one answer. But another answer is that, in my view, the things which are essential to Christianity have, in fact, survived and have been preserved by this tradition. And so, that'd be an explanation for why God tolerated this type of deviation. You know, so very roughly, the kind of things you see in the Apostles' Creed, not quite, I don't agree with, uh, I think it endorses, like, you know, the bishop-led universal church is what it means. That's not what I think is the universal church, but roughly those things. There's one God, the Father Almighty. He sent his son, Jesus. He died for our sins. He raised him on the third day. And then after that, the Spirit was sent to empower us. Jesus is going to come back and rule. Those things were in fact preserved, You know the kind of things that you see in Acts 2. And that's why I think lots of people in different Trinitarian groups, they're definitely born-again Christians in my book. You got uh, hypocrites and hangers-on and climbers and profiteers, you know, in any religious group. But insofar as what's essential to the message, according to the New Testament, is basically that Jesus is the Messiah. But there's a lot packed into that, right? So God sent his son. What does the Messiah do? Well, it's a very big job description, it turns out. He's going to come back and rule the world. But before that, he was a greater revelation of God than heretofore it happened. He died in atoning death and was vindicated by God. Confessing Jesus as Lord, as in Lord Messiah, that's it. That's all I think is essential. So, I mean, weirdly enough, some of the most thoughtful Trinitarians agree with me. So if, like if Romans you go down 10, to, 9,
1: for example, right? Yeah. Um, Jesus is Lord God raised him from the dead. He will be saved.
0: Right. Or if you look at any of the preaching in Acts, it sounds like my kind of person, frankly. There is no Trinity or incarnation stuff there. But never mind that, you know, if you go down to get saved at an evangelistic meeting, they are not going to ask you what you think about two natures and whether you affirm the Nicene Creed. They're going to ask you if you believe that Jesus was sent to die for your sins and will you accept Jesus as your savior? Those minimalist instincts are right. So if you can be saved without believing that stuff, and yet you're going to go to hell if usually they'll say something like... um, if you're fully informed and you still don't accept it then you're going to hell it's a strange view right because if you make a deal once you're in and have made the deal you can't change the terms of the of the deal right you make it one time those are the terms when the Trinities podcast returns dr rouser asks me how we should think about the concept of heresy
1: I'm sure you've been you know, called a heretic uh, uh, yeah. more than once. Um, I mean, I've been called a heretic probably in the last couple weeks online. It's interesting in our day how many self-appointed bishops there are who declare people heretics, anathema, yeah. cut them off from the church. What does the concept of heresy mean to you? How should we go about using a term like that?
0: To me, a heretic is just a divisive person. Somebody who is always quarreling about whatever their pet issue is. No matter what healthy and good context you put them in, they're going to lead to trouble. And I think that's the New Testament concept of a heretic. There are, I think, essential teachings without which I don't think a person counts as a Christian at all. And, you know, I would recommend avoiding them, you know, like not believing in God, not believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Torahism is, I think, a pretty serious failing. And that comes up constantly in Unitarian Christian circles, thinking that Christians have to keep the law. Well, as much of the lies you can still keep given the temple's long gone. Really, it's just the parts that they like to play around with most of the time. But Yeah, so the Catholic approach to heresy is basically if you're a Catholic and you're teaching something the church disagrees with and you won't shut up and we tell you to stop doing that, you're a heretic. And so heresy is relative to the authority of Mother Church. Protestant's approach doesn't really make a lot of sense. Usually a guy will just say, Here's the essentials. If you disagree with any of these essentials, you're a heretic and nobody should have to do with you. No one should pay any attention to you. You're cancer in the body of Christ, basically. <laughs> but you know, they might slip into that list voting for Republicans or <laughs> but look, even Trinity and Incarnation should not be in that list. But they are. So I did a series of podcasts about this. The great Christian philosopher John Locke was very disturbed about all of the early modern. Quarreling about disputed points of doctrine amongst the Protestants, largely, you know, between like Calvinists and Arminians, for instance. And he sat down with the New Testament one winter and just read the whole thing and asked himself, What is it that this says you're supposed to believe? And he came up with the answer that I gave a minute ago, which is you're supposed to believe that Jesus is God's Messiah. This other stuff, you know, it's theories. And I'm not against theories, I'm not anti intellectual. I don't think truth doesn't matter. I want to have a view that makes sense. I want to try to take into account all of the evidence and all of the teaching of scripture and so on. So I think people should, insofar as they're able, develop their minds theologically, but I don't see any, I guess, apostolic mandate to think about who's in and who's out this way.
1: Now you did mention, so there are things you think a person has to believe, such as belief in God, belief in Jesus as Messiah. When you say have to believe, Would that be in terms of participation in the community in some fashion, or is that a salvation requirement? What would be your understanding?
0: Well, salvation is fundamentally being reconciled to God. God is free to require as little as he wants to in that. And uh, I don't think that everybody that's not a Christian goes to hell necessarily. I think people can only be judged fairly on the basis of what they knew or what they should have known. But, yeah, for purposes of Christian fellowship, I would want people to at least not disagree with a small core set of teachings. I am well aware that it's not clear that belief exactly is what should be demanded for faith. My friends Dan Howard Snyder and Daniel McCoy have published papers on this, and they argue that acceptance, why isn't that just good enough?, uh, maybe you can't bring yourself to believe, but you want to believe, sort of, and you want it to be true and, You're like, well, God, I I don't know if you're there. I'm not even sure if I believe that you're there, but I'm going to take some steps as if I did believe that. I think maybe that's good enough. And so a person like that would not have any problem with just the basic confessions, probably, of the sort of group I I envision that's more minimalistic in its demands. And um, why would I divide from a person like that? It looks like they're heading towards God. I would expect they would get belief at a certain point. But what do I know? I mean, maybe for yourself, do you, so people never do
1: you attend a Unitarian church? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So is it a specific denomination or.
0: Yeah. It's from a, uh, restorationist American denomination called the church of God, general conference. And there's other things called that. Sometimes they add the words Abrahamic faith, but if you just Google church of God, general conference, you'll probably find it that way. It's just a more protestant radical reformation group that derives from second half of the 1800s it's related to some of the other restorationist stuff going on kind of in the middle of america in that time a Um, a little bit similar to them but different in in various ways so um, some has some things in common with christadelphians for instance mm -hmm. but that's kind of a unique thing you know churches of christ
1: you know you know the famous quote from Carl um, Rahner that uh, many churches are almost mere monotheists rather than overtly Trinitarian in sort of their, their liturgical practice. I'm wondering in the opposite direction whether a person off the street walking into your church who knew their Trinitarian theology would be able to tell sitting through a service that there's a different theology underlying this community.
0: Unitarian Bible-based churches vary quite a lot in how pugilistic they are about all of this. I think you would, in a couple of Sundays, figure it out in our church, at least if you came to Sunday school. But I'm aware of other groups that really aren't that way. One of them would be the um, Christian Disciples Church, which is largely Asian, but it's in Canada and Australia. They're an interesting story. They were this conservative evangelical denomination founded by this Chinese fellow named Eric Chang, who's now deceased. He just, in his old age, I think, when he was in his 60s or 70s, just decided to re-examine the Trinity issue in the Bible, and he came to views like mine. And the denomination studied it, and almost all of them just changed their minds. So this is, I don't know how many dozens of churches scattered through at least half a dozen Asian countries, plus Canada and Australia. It's all over their website. If you Google Christian Disciples Church, you'll find two books about this. But they take the view, which I think is healthy, that anti-Trinitarian stuff really just isn't part of New Testament teaching. It's more that it's just irrelevant. You need to help deprogram somebody when they're switching views. But after that, like, why would you want to talk about that stuff when you can actually talk about all the stuff that's taught in the New Testament? I think that's a healthier view. Or my friend Sean Finnegan's church, uh, Living Hope International Ministries, they have several churches in the northeast of, a U- of the U.S., and they're they're planting one in Kentucky right now. Um, I think they're that way as well. Mm. So yeah, you might not know. I mean, you would if you read the statement of faith, if you were struck up a conversation with the pastor, things like that. Right. It's not that they would hide it, but I don't think they would necessarily wave it in your face. When the Trinity's podcast returns. Dr. Rouser asks me, why not accept traditional ideas about the Trinity as a mystery?
1: I wasn't planning to leave this question until the end, but uh, it's coming now at the end. And this question comes back to confusion and mystery. So you mentioned seven claims. So to summarize them, the Father is divine, the Son is divine, the Spirit is divine, the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Spirit, the Son is not the Spirit, there is one God. Mm -hmm. And a person says, okay, uh, let's say they say, I do believe all of those, but I don't know how to put them together. I'm going to say it is a mystery and why should I not expect an infinite God to be beyond my understanding? Uh, Why is that an unsatisfactory response in your view?
0: Well, I I think that last part is right. I mean, who claims that they can completely understand God? I mean, God is all knowing. So anybody who believes in a God who's all knowing, there's going to be an infinity of things that we don't know about God right there, many infinities of them. The problem with that view, though, is is the end result, which is that the one God is the triune God, conflicts with the New Testament teaching, which is that the one God is the Father alone. So that's the problem. What's wrong with believing in mysteries per se? If you have a view that's well-founded, maybe there's just some anomalies you can't make sense of. Fine. It's when you look into it enough that you start to think that a different paradigm is needed, that the whole thing just isn't working. When the anomalies start piling up and getting more numerous and bigger and more bothersome, then a person's ready for you know something analogous to a scientific revolution. To me, when you get a feel for the whole New Testament, not just the favorite proof text passages, what I call the canon within a canon that Catholic tradition uses, but when you look at the whole thing, there's just a bunch of things that don't make sense, and it it does start to pile up. So, for instance. They never worship the Trinity or the Holy Spirit. Well, that's really surprising. Whenever they seem to suggest that Jesus is limited in power or knowledge, they just walk right past it. They don't say, you know, don't forget about his divine nature. That's omniscient. They don't do that kind of stuff. The way they use the word God, etc., there's a lot of things. I talk about these things in podcast 189, the unfinished business of the reformation. And I have a chapter in my book, What is the Trinity about these kind of mysterian and defenses? One kind of mysterian defense is just, I can't answer all the questions. Okay, fine. Who can answer all the questions, you know? But another kind is, I'm going to purposely remain believing what appear to be contradictory claims. So it involves believing apparent contradictions. The problem with that, I think, practically is it doesn't leave your mind anywhere to rest. You can't just sit there and tell yourself P and not P. Sometimes you're going to think P, sometimes you're going to think not P. Sometimes you're going to be stuck in the middle like an agnostic. And so in practice, it's really kind of lousy and discouraging, and uh, it's not really to be recommended. The last point I would say is you just don't see these mysterian defenses in the New Testament. like They just don't need them. You know, Do a word study of mystery in the New Testament. It means you know this. A mystery in the New Testament is something formerly hidden, which has now been revealed in the gospel era, and so now we know it. They don't need to defend parent contradictions. Why is that? <laughs> Cause the one true God's the Father. That's just, just like the Jewish monotheism and Jesus is this miraculously born man.
1: I and, would also um, say though that um I mean the New Testament, as you said, it's not a lot about metaphysics. I mean, this just mm-hmm. isn't on their radar.
0: No, it's not. It's background stuff for yeah. them. It just comes out, it's usually presupposed, like Paul says in one place, I think in Acts, I worship the God of my ancestors. Or Jesus says in John 8, you know, the one that you say is your God, referring to the Father. Suddenly you realize, like, oh, wait, the Jews and the Christian Jews and originally, they don't have a theological disagreement here. It's really all about is Jesus the Messiah. And th- that's one of my facts that I think the more you think about it, the more it should bug you if you believe in the deity of Christ. The thesis of all four Gospels, the point that they hammer home in a bunch of different ways, one way is by making it their obvious thesis statement, is that Jesus is God's Christ. Right? Who do you say I am? The Messiah, the Son of God. John 20, these things are written, so you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. If what they're really getting at is that Jesus is God, or that Jesus is fully divine, or God-man. Like They spectacularly drop the ball. This seems to be evidence that, no, they don't think that. They think what they say, which is that Jesus is God's Messiah. Weirdly, mainstream Catholic traditional views lead a person to think that being a Messiah is really no big deal. He's just a mere man, right? A mere man who's going to like judge the world? God's going to judge the world through this man he's appointed, Acts 17. That's not very mere, you know? <laughs> If he's ruling over the church and will rule over the world, presumably he's gotten whatever upgrades in power and knowledge he needs, whether he has any divine attributes, you know, is maybe a question that could be argued, but there's nothing Yeah, You should fear Jesus.
1: I have one more question. Now, I heard that you're part of a four views book on the Trinity with Bill Craig. Is that right? Who's publishing that, first of all? I know Zondervan has a four views book already on the doctrine of the Trinity.
0: Molnar. It's being published in a series edited by Ryan Mullins and someone else whose name I'm forgetting. I apologize. And it's going to be published by that Pacific Northwest.
1: Wipfenstock? I think
0: it's published by Wipfenstock. Yeah. Yeah. And the four views will be mine the Eastern Orthodox convert analytic theologian, Bo Branson, which that'll be interesting Mm because his views are. A little different um a little bit tricky to get a hold of too and then my friend bill hasker and william lane craig i would have preferred to have what i call a oneself trinitarian in there but the editor chad mcintosh who's a evangelical phd from cornell in philosophy he really wanted it to be more bible oriented and he, he couldn't think of like a one-self person who would keep it more Bible-oriented rather than just sort of going off to metaphysical la-la land. Mm. That's the fashion now, right? Metaphysics goes in and out of fashion all the time. Right now, metaphysical mayhem is like a mark of prestige. The latest Trinity theories are really kind of, in my, in my opinion, something only a metaphysician could love. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> It's yeah. going to be two social Trinitarians, whatever Branson is, and a biblical Unitarian. Craig's views are shifting too. I'm not sure.
1: Well, and the social, even the term social Trinitarians pretty much fall yeah. out of favor.
0: Yeah, but, I'm not uh, sure yeah. that really describes so, And his that's coming out next year? God willing, yeah. I think we're supposed to turn in the first, our opening salvos in uh, like January 1st of okay. 2023. So maybe by the end of the year, they'll have it all edited.
1: All right. So, so that's one to look for. And again, I uh, want to underscore to people, I read What is the Trinity? Really lo- loved it. Great, concise book, beautifully concise, uh, and just lays out your views and, and, and provides a nice well, challenge.
0: It doesn't really argue for my views. It's really just an sure. invitation to think yeah. about it to yeah. Trinitarians. Yeah. It's, it's a
1: guidebook. It's a, it's yeah. a guide for thinking. Um, in in terms of podcasts, like what would you identify? You've referred to a few of them, like 189. I think sounded like a big one. If you were to direct people to like one or two podcasts just to go into more depth on this kind of an introductory way, do you have any in mind that that you would recommend? Yeah, episodes? a I mean. recent
0: one I did. I can't remember the number of it, but it's it's called "Who Do You Say I Am." Okay. it's similar to podcast 189 in that it focuses on indisputable facts about the New Testament such that it seems that they're to be expected given Unitarian views, or at least they're not surprising, but they'd be very surprising if the authors were Trinitarians or believed in the deity of Christ. And so, you know, I'm trying to give non-question begging arguments for my way of understanding the New Testament, right? If I just give my favorite Unitarian text, people are like, oh, you're assuming Unitarianism, you goofball. Or if I say, well, I understand Philippians 2 this way, they'll be like, ha ha my seven favorite scholars disagree. Okay, but I'll give you the controversial texts for the sake of argument, but let's talk about the whole picture, which I think strongly favors Unitarian Christian views.
1: Are you still working on, on a academic tome as well? Uh, on the theoretically,
0: training? I'm mostly editing this other book in what editing uh, writing time I have now. I have a book about different approaches to the Trinity that I've been working on for like 10 years and can't really seem to finish. Uh, and the theories keep proliferating, so that's kind of annoying.
1: hazard, right?
0: And I have all these unpublished essays and presentations that I want to publish. So, you know, God willing, if I live long enough and don't get burnt out, I'd like to do that. The book starts off with all these desiderata, almost all of which most Trinitarians would agree with. Basically, the argument is, these theories give you some of the things that you desire, and these theories give you some other things that you desire. And it looks like nobody's going to give you all of them. So it looks like instead of trying to keep all the balls in the air, we're going to have to maybe prioritize these a little bit. Some of them have to do with the Bible, and some of them have to do with theological tradition. And so then I would move from talking about triune God theories to talking about, I have a big long chapter on origins theology, which is representative of the Logos theorists of the mid third century. And then I would talk about like a dynamic monarchy kind of view. But like I said, the book keeps getting longer and longer. And I have all these other things distracting me from it. So I don't know if it's out in 10 years, it'd probably be a miracle.
1: Well, that's another reason to keep tuning into the Trinity's podcast.
0: Well, thanks, thanks for the uh, conversation. I appreciate bet. it. Brianna. I
1: really appreciate you joining us. It's been great.
0: Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Rouser. Be sure to check out the blog post for this episode at trinities.org for links to Dr. Rouser's YouTube channel and his blog, which will also tell you about his many interesting books. This week's Thinking Music has been the track Uke Sounds by Airtone. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, where you can listen to or download that entire track. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.